And if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open up to Micah chapter 4. Micah chapter 4. Seat back in front of you, and you'll find Micah 4 on page 657 in that Bible. And can we have the first, the, the first and only slide up? If you've ever visited the United Nations in Manhattan, then you may have passed this wall, which is across the street. And it has part of today's text inscribed on it. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall no longer take up sword against nation, nor shall they learn war anymore. And in light of all the UN has on their plate right now, and seems always, um, it's tempting to say, yeah, right, when is that ever going to happen? And this, of course, isn't a recent problem. Uh, the Society of International Law in London has calculated that in the last 4,000 years, there have been only 268 years of peace. In the last three centuries alone, there have been 286 wars on the continent of Europe. And so it's easy to read a text like Micah's text for today and to say, when is that ever going to happen? This is true all the more so when you realize that today's text is describing what is happening in Jerusalem and from Jerusalem spreading out all over the earth. And in light of the recent fighting again between Israel and Palestine, it's tempting to read today's text and say, yeah, right, when is that ever going to happen? That must have been the response that uh, Micah's first hearers, the people who were around when the prophet Micah first spoke this prophecy, that must have been the response that they had. That was a time of, of serious economic and military decline for God's people. In the geopolitical world of that day, the empire of Assyria was rapidly growing in power and the Assyrians were, were hammering away at the resources and the stability of God's people. And so in 7... 22 BC, the history books tell us, Assyria totally devastated and demolished the northern kingdom of Israel. And soon after, during the reign of King Ahaz, Assyria reduced the southern kingdom of Judah to subservient status. Uh, Judah had to pay heavy taxes to Assyria. They had to obey Assyria's wishes. A little later, during the reign of King Hezekiah in 701 BC, Assyria invaded Judah, they conquered all of Judah's towns, and they laid siege to Jerusalem itself. And it was only by a, mir a miracle of God, which you can read about in the middle of the book of Isaiah, that Jerusalem survived. But still, while all this was going on, you read this prophecy from Micah about Mount Zion, Jerusalem, being exalted to be the highest of all mountains, and you might think, yeah, right, when is that ever going to happen? Such cynicism must have been even more compelling for those who followed Micah, who lived in the years after he prophesied, and who were perhaps some of the first to read his prophecies when they were collected together into the form of the book of Micah, which we have today. You see, these later readers had experienced what Micah had foretold back in Micah 3, 
a chapter before Micah 4, uh, 4, if you want to flip back a page, Micah had prophesied the destruction of God's people by war. Micah 3, 9 to 12. Hear this, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel, who despise justice, who distort all that is right, who build Zion for bloodshed and Jerusalem for wickedness. Her leaders judge for a bribe, her priests teach for a price, and her prophets tell fortunes for money. Therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble. The temple hill, a mound overgrown with thickets. And if you know anything about Jewish history, then you know that this devastation took place beginning in 605 BC when the empire of Babylon came, attacked, and finally defeated Jerusalem and took many of its leaders captive. Then later, Babylon returned to utterly burn and to destroy the city's defenses, their walls, their palaces, and temple until it was indeed just a pile of rubble, like Micah had predicted. Can you imagine experiencing that, that wreckage and that, that carnage and, and God's people weeping in despair as everything was burning down around them and reading today's text about Jerusalem glorified and peace reigning and everyone enjoying the good life in their own good land under their own vine and fig tree and, and you might just be tempted to think, yeah, right, when is that ever going to happen? So from the day that Micah first uttered these words right down to today, some 2,500 years later, the world has been waiting, waiting for peace, waiting for the blessing that this prophecy envisions. Well, let me ask you a question. What is it exactly that that Micah is promising us here in this text? What is it exactly that, that Micah says is coming, which we find hard to believe? Well, let's take a closer look at this this famous passage, this passage which offers such a stirring vision of of world peace that that people have uh, latched onto it, quoting it in many times and places, including outside the United Nations today. This passage begins with an amazing description of Mount Zion, the mountain that the city of Jerusalem and particularly the temple is built upon, which becomes, Mount Zion becomes a synonym for the city itself. And in Micah's vision, this city, this mountain, is lifted up to become the highest of mountains. Or literally in Hebrew, the word is head, the head of the mountains. And so the point is probably not that Mount Zion is going to literally uh, grow to become taller, but rather that it's going to grow in importance, in in influence, in, in prominence, until it's exalted over all other cities and countries so that people from all over the world stream to it. And why do they stream to it? Well, in verse 2, the visitors from the nations themselves give the answer. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The nations stream to Jerusalem not to sightsee, to look at its wonders, not to shop, to purchase its wares, not to trade, to benefit from its markets, but rather to worship, to learn about the Lord and how to follow God's commands. Why? Because Zion is the place where the Lord is present in a special way. The place where his temple is located. And so God is going to exalt Zion, and people from all nations are going to come streaming to it to learn the ways of God. 
And, and this is so ironic because at the time that Micah is speaking this prophecy, he's also, as we just saw in chapter 3, condemning God's people for being so disobedient to God's commands and so unfaithful and idolatrous to God himself. That's why they wound up in exile. Because instead of being in a position to, to teach the nations to know and obey God, God's people had followed the nations in turning their backs on God and worshiping idols. And, and so with God's own people so pitifully far from God's ways and God's commands, it's tempting to read verse 2 and say, yeah, right, when is that ever going to happen? When are people ever going to be able to go to Jerusalem to learn about God when God's own people have turned so far from him? Well, Micah continues after describing the, the exaltation of God's city. Micah goes on to describe the amazing effects that this will have on the whole world. This, Micah says, is what happens when you lift up the Lord, when you, you put him first, when you follow his ways. Good things happen because God is a good God and God wants good for the world that God has created. And so we read, finishing up verse 2, the law will go out from Zion. The word of the Lord from Jerusalem. In Micah's vision, people from the nations are, are coming to God and to God's people hungry to learn. They're, they're coming to learn about God, to, to learn about his word, and, and then they're taking what they learn back with them, back home, and this is how God's word is going out to the nations. And what happens when God's word and God's commands become known and followed among all peoples? Well, verse 3. He will judge between many peoples. He will just settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. Wouldn't it be great if there was a wise and an impartial judge who the factions in Iraq and, and Syria could go to to have their disputes judged and settled and whose teaching and instruction they could learn from and live by and, and whom the, the, the Israelis and the Palestinians could go to as well, and whom the Russians and the Ukrainians could go to. Wouldn't it be great? Uh, imagine God setting all these disputes, settling all these disputes once and for all, so that these people didn't need weapons anymore, so that they could beat them into garden tools and, and focus on feeding their needy instead of killing their enemies. That's what Micah foretells. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. And what's the result when war has been done away with and peace reigns? Verse 4. Everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid, for the Lord Almighty has spoken. To sit under your own vine and, and fig tree is language borrowed from 1 Kings chapters 4 and 5. It's used there to describe the reign of King Solomon, which was the golden age, the high watermark of, of God's kingdom in the Old Testament. And so it's, it's poetic, picturesque language to describe good life, when, when peace reigns, when, when you have no fear from your enemies and, and the economy can flourish. And those were agricultural days, and so the image is, is that you have your own grapevine, you have your own fig trees. They provide all that you need. No one's going to take it away, and so life is good. You own your own home, so to speak. You, you work for yourself, and you have plenty. No one is oppressing you. No one is taking advantage of you. This is a picture of what the Bible means when it uses the Hebrew word for peace, which is shalom. 
We translate it as peace into English, but it's a lot more than just peace. Peace, freedom from war, that's a great start. That's necessary. But shalom is about how life can flourish when there are no wars, no injustice, no oppression, no conflicts. It's about how life can flourish when God blesses you. When, when life is good, when all is healthy and whole and, and everything is prospering. Many of us who are amazingly privileged not to live in Iraq or Afghanistan, not to live as a refugee or to live on the streets, but to live in a place where there's rule of law and, and basic freedoms and amazing prosperity, we have experienced and enjoyed a, a measure of this shalom. But when we look at the world and when we look at history, we realize so much of the world isn't so fortunate. And we realize there's a chance that our children may, uh, come, who come after us may not be as fortunate as some of us have been to live in, in these economic times, in these times of peace. And, and so we recognize that despite our experience now, the wider world still has a long way to go until Micah's great vision comes true. And it may not last forever for us either. And so again, we're tempted to ask, yeah, right, when is this ever going to happen for final and for good? Are you ready for the answer? (laughs) When will Micah's great vision ever come true? Well, it has already begun. It has already begun. Already Mount Zion is being raised and exalted. Already people from all nations are streaming to it. Already they are learning God's ways and and walking in God's paths. Already God's word is going out. Already God is judging among many peoples, settling disputes. Already people are giving up conflict and war to care for the basic needs of people instead. Already people are enjoying peace, shalom, the good life. Already, Micah's vision is beginning to be fulfilled. Now, let me give you two reasons that I make such a bold claim. (laughs) Uh, First is the phrase which Micah opens his prophecy with, in the last days. The New Testament tells us that with the coming of Jesus, the Messiah, we have entered the last days that the Old Testament prophets spoke about. There are several places we could look at to see this. Let me just mention two. First, in Acts 2, you could flip your Bible there if you're, if you're quick. You know how to find Acts 2. Um, Acts 2 is about the day of Pentecost, when Jesus poured out his spirit on his followers. And, and Peter gets up to explain it. And in verses 16 and 17 of Acts 2, Peter says, This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. And so Peter's saying that the gift of the Spirit being poured out at Pentecost was a signal that we have entered the last days. Second, if you want to flip back to Hebrews chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 1 and 2. We read there, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days... He has spoken to us by his Son. According to the New Testament, when God's Son, Jesus, the Messiah, came, bringing God's kingdom, dying and rising from the dead, and pouring out God's Spirit, these were sure signs that the prophecies God had given in the Old Testament about the last days were finally beginning to come true. 
The second reason I say that this amazing vision in Micah has already begun coming true is Hebrews 12, 22 and 23. If you're still in Hebrews, you can turn back to chapter 12. In this passage, the writer of Hebrews contrasts Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. Mount Sinai, he reminds us, is, is the place where God made a first covenant with Moses and, and the Israelites. And if you know that story, you know that Mount Sinai was, was characterized by earthquakes and, and smoke on the mountain, and everyone was trembling and they were terrified. But the writer of Hebrews says to those who follow Jesus, you have not come to that mountain, to Mount Sinai. No, you have come, verses 22 and 23, to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose, li- whose names are written in heaven. According to this passage in Hebrews, we who now live in the last days, the days Moses or Micah, sorry, prophesied about, we have come to Mount Zion. Mount Zion, which Micah says would be exalted above all mountains, and all the nations would stream to it, and God's laws and teachings would go out from it, and God would judge right from wrong, and so there would be peace, shalom, and everyone would live in peace and goodness. The good news of the New Testament, the gospel, is that this great vision that Micah and other Old Testament prophets have given us in various ways has already begun to come true through Jesus Christ who came to begin its fulfillment. Now at this point, I want to point out that Christians disagree on how literally we can expect Old Testament prophecies like this one in Micah to be fulfilled. And some believe that one day Zion will quite literally Uh, be the key um, earthly city to which all peoples will stream to learn the ways of God. And others believe that Micah's prophecy is, 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 uh, that his prophecy is figurative and and it will be fulfilled only through Jesus' kingdom and his followers. But either way, whether or not we're looking forward to a more literal fulfillment in the future, the New Testament is clear that through Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of this vision has already begun. We are living in the last days Micah spoke about. We who have come to Jesus have come to Mount Zion to learn the ways of God. After all, whenever a group of Jesus' followers gather, Jesus is present among us by the Spirit. And so we are God's temple, and among us, God's ways are taught. And so as the good news of Jesus goes out to all nations, people are streaming to God to learn God's commands. And as they are taught the teachings of Jesus, those who hate are learning to love. And those who thought only about themselves are learning to care for others, to treat them justly and equitably. And wherever people turn to Jesus, their standard of living is also tending to increase. There's a well-documented phenomenon in church history and in missions that often it's the poor who are most open to the good news about Jesus. But as those poor people grow in their faith and they raise their children in the faith, they begin to move bit by bit out of poverty into the middle class. As Jesus teaches them to be responsible, to to work hard, to work honestly, to, to value education, hard work, and industry, as they spend less on alcohol and on gambling and on other vices, and they use that money to care for their families, they begin to prosper. 
And so in many ways, in many places, wherever the spirit of Jesus is present and the word of Jesus is taught and followed, Micah's great prophecy is beginning to be fulfilled. Not fulfilled completely by any means. We wait and we long for much which we do not have yet. But yet, Micah's vision really is being fulfilled nonetheless. And we, as God's people, have a role to play in it. This was put well several years ago in an article in Christianity Today magazine. We as God's people are to be the already in what is mostly still a not yet world. Let me say that again. We as God's people are to be the already in what is mostly still a not yet world. That sums up what the church is about. So let's move to application. What does Micah's prophecy have to say to us today? Well, first, it says that the God we worship loves peace. God loves shalom. God wants shalom for his world. The way the world is today, with war and conflict tearing people apart, and with some going hungry while others are well-fed, that isn't the way God wants the world to be. Micah's vision tells us that if people would only listen and, and heed God's instructions and God's commands, there would be peace. There would be plenty. And that's what God wants. That's what God intends for this world. And one day, Micah assures us, peace will finally reign over all. And so for Christians to look at war and, and to just shrug our shoulders and say, well, that's just the way it is. Or to look at poverty and suffering and, and shake our heads and, and just say, well, it, it's just always going to be that way. To do that is a betrayal of Micah's vision. It's a misrepresentation of God's character. Because the God we worship is a God of peace. A God who wants shalom for his creation. Are you a Christian? Christians do not believe like many who follow Eastern religions do, that life is just a relentless cycle of never-ending birth and death with pain and suffering in between. Christians do not believe that karma or fate consign the poor to the fate they suffer and so it's unnecessary and pointless to intervene or help. No, we as Christians believe in a God of hope, a God who is moving history toward a good end, a God who longs for his world to know peace, to know shalom. And so Micah's vision reminds me of a story uh, once told by Robert Louis Stevenson. He tells of a storm which caught a vessel off a rocky coast and, and threatened to drive it and its passengers to destruction on the rocks. And in the midst of this storm, one daring man, contrary to orders, went up onto the deck and made a dangerous passage to the pilot's house. And there he saw the steerman lashed fast to his post, holding the wheel unwaveringly and inch by inch turning the ship out once again to the safety of the sea away from the rocky coast. And the pilot saw the passenger who was watching and smiled at him. And that daring passenger went back below and, and he gave a note of cheer to the others. He said, I have seen the face of the pilot. And he smiled. All is well. That's what Micah's text is doing for us today. Showing us the face of the pilot 
Our God is a God of peace, a God of shalom, and he has assured us that all is not headed for ruin, but that peace is going to prevail in the end. Because he has sent his Prince of Peace into the world in these last days. And so for us who follow that Prince of Peace, as we've been remembering this summer, God has sent his own spirit into our hearts so that we would bear the Spirit's fruit and like the Prince of Peace, that we would bear the fruit of peace in our lives. You know, we often read that the fruit of the Spirit is peace and and we assume that it means inner peace, that it means uh, calm and and freedom from worry and and from anxiety. And, And that's part of it. We've been singing about that and remembering that this morning. But it only begins to scratch the surface of God's vision of peace. God's peace is also peace in relationships. It's peace with our bosses and with our coworkers. It's peace in our families. It's um, peace between races, as the the tree uh, trailer reminded us this morning. It's peace between union and management. It's peace between nations. God's vision is for the well-being and the flourishing of his whole creation. And when we have God's spirit bearing fruit in our lives, then God's vision, Micah's vision, becomes our vision and we devote ourselves to that task. And so let's make this very practical as we leave church today, we begin our weeks. Chances are this week, at one point or another, you will bump into a situation where peace does not reign. (laughs) maybe it will be uh, in one of our relationships maybe it will be a situation at work or at school and it's tempting to settle for the way things are and, and say well that's just the way it is in this fallen world but what if we didn't what if we remembered Micah's vision and that through Jesus it's already beginning to come true and we remember that God's heart is peace And that God has put his spirit in our hearts because he has called us as his people to be agents and representatives of his peace. And so what if we did something about that situation? Something to bring more of God's peace into the situation we face this week. Let me close with with just one example I read about recently of someone who did this. Uh, This was originally published maybe 10 years ago in the Des Moines Register. Mildred Fister's Beauty Parlor in Jefferson, Iowa, has an unusual rule. Mildred refuses to allow gossip. A columnist in the Des Moines Register reacted this way. This is a beauty parlor, for goodness sake. One of those places women come to say things. Loving, kind, unkind, and sure, maybe downright nasty about their friends and neighbors, whether it's true or not. It's as basic in a beauty parlor as a blow dry, isn't it? Not here, Pfister says. There is absolutely no talking about other people in Mildred Pfister's shop. Talk about you and yours if you like, but in the meantime, no gossip. At least Pfister doesn't have to worry about keeping secrets. She knows secrets because she's a friend to everybody who comes in the place. They know she can be trusted. Sometimes people don't have anybody to talk to, she says. So they confide in me. They tell me things about themselves. They know I'll never repeat what they say. That's better than gossip. It's called friendship. It's also called peace. Shalom. 
another small taste of Micah's vision being fulfilled today. And so now it's your turn and my turn, we who have God's spirit, the spirit who bears the fruit of peace, God's peace in our hearts. How will we bring peace this week? Let's respond in worship.